Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Welcome back to another episode of Moving to Live. This week we have part two with Dr. Bill Buskis. Bill is a retired professor from Auburn University where the bulk of his professional work focused on undergraduate instruction and working with faculty nationally and internationally to develop and refine their classroom teaching skills. The reason I wanted to have Bill on here is because I think he, first of all, exemplifies somebody who maintains movement through a long period of time, literally decades various levels of activity, various sports, and various levels of competition. The underlying theme, I think, in part one of the interview two weeks ago was that movement was always a priority for him, and he found that it helped him mentally and also allows him to now do things at retirement that maybe many other people say, well, I can't do that because I'm not fit enough. I think he's a great example of this is why you want to maintain activity throughout the lifespan. And basically, see what you're doing now is going to have the benefits, not just tomorrow, but 15, 20, or even 30 years down the line. So if you're somebody who's thinking about moving, you've got clearance from your physician, even if you're not very fit, get out and take a walk. In this episode of uh, Moving to Live, I want to talk to Bill about his teaching expertise, and I think he's really got some great insights because he's coming at it from a psychology background. He's not coming at it from a teacher education background or somebody who is in the movement or coaching business, and I think he's going to have some information that can transfer across the fields and really be helpful to anybody in the movement business. So, Bill, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live for part two. Oh, you're welcome, Ben. Glad to be back. Thank you very much for asking me. So you described your academic path a little bit in the first part of the interview. Unfortunate uh, shoulder injury as a baseball player at BYU. A little bit of excessive weight gain followed by finding exercise to lose the weight and becoming more serious about your studies. And I have the advantage of knowing you for 20 years and also reading the bioform you filled out. You majored in psychology. You got a doctorate in psychology 
And can you describe a little bit, maybe give the 30-second spiel if you see somebody at a conference and they say, oh, what do you do? So I know you're retired now, but kind of give the spiel of what you what your area of expertise in psychology is. Um, the funny thing is, I, I sort of left psychology um, in the late 80s because I was uh, given a problem to solve uh, in my department. And that problem was that um, some of the courses were being taught rather shoddily. And could I step in and figure out how to um, have those courses taught better? And that was a great big left-hand turn for me in my career. I sort of left what I was doing in the laboratory, which was studying human competition, um, to looking at what makes a good teacher a good teacher. And so when people ask me now what, what I do, I tell them first and foremost, I'm a teacher. And I follow up with saying that what my passion is, is understanding what makes excellent teachers excellent. And I think two questions that arise from that is, first of all, if this was relatively young in your career, if it was the mid, mid to late 80s, why did they not tell you that you need to move into the education department and rather they allowed you to stay in the psychology department? That would be my first question. Well, the answer to that is, is that there was a huge need to fix this problem. The department chair came to me and said uh, a couple of things. One is that we had this introductory class that's being taught by uh, these graduate students who have never taught before. They have no background in teaching. Some of them are, are teaching courses uh, or aspects within the introductory course that they never even had an undergraduate course in. And we need to put this right because we're doing our undergraduates a disservice. So every department chair that I had after this person always appreciated me because I was working very, very hard to help um, improve the teaching of graduate students who are going to be given responsibility for these courses. Um, and that's going to help the, the undergraduate program develop. It's going to help what students are learning. It's going to help those graduate students um, have, have another area of strength that they can talk about um, when they interview for jobs, because not only are they good researchers, but they also know how to teach. So they really saw what I was doing as added value. And that's why they didn't kick me out of the department, although some faculty members would have liked to have that happen. So strong support from your boss is really important to be successful in a career. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think you hit on something that really directly transfers over into the exercise and movement field. Uh, they brought you in or actually retasked you rather than brought you in since you were still in the department with fixing a problem, which was people teaching something that they had limited knowledge or experience doing. And I know in the exercise right. field, it's very common for people to say, well, I have a certification that I got. I don't need to have more education or, well, I was a really good runner or I really enjoy taking fill in your favorite group exercise class. So I'm going to be a really good teacher. And your area of expertise has been identifying what makes an excellent teacher I suspect there's not a really good answer for this in, in a uh, soundbite, but could you briefly talk about what makes a good teacher versus a bad teacher? So if somebody comes to you and maybe they've got a couple of minutes and they say, you know, Dr. Buskus, what makes a good teacher? What are some traits or what makes a bad teacher so that maybe somebody can immediately identify what's going on with identifying good and bad teachers? Well, let's, uh, that's a good question. Let's, let's take your example of having 
acquired some body of knowledge. You know, for example, you acquire a, a lot of knowledge if you become an, uh, an elite runner. But that doesn't mean that you can teach running or teach somebody else how to run. Um, you know, having knowledge of something is one thing, but communicating it and sharing it in a way that will motivate people to learn it or that uh, will inspire them to want to learn it is a whole other matter. So being knowledgeable is one thing, but that doesn't guarantee that you're going to be a good teacher or even a, a teacher at all. Uh, you may have a master's degree or a PhD in something, which means that you have acquired a body of knowledge, but transmitting that knowledge to another human being requires a different set of skills than simply knowing something. You have to know something about teaching. You have to know something about establishing a learning environment. Uh, you have to be able to learn how to read your students to know where there's some hesitancy in what they're learning. Um, sometimes you, you know, there's not a one size fits all type of approach to teaching. Every teacher, every student is unique and you've got to be able to um, adapt and improvise different methods given the situation that you find yourself in. Are there any specific traits that no matter what the learning environment established or what this teacher is teaching, are there any specific traits that most excellent teachers exhibit? Um, that's very funny that you asked that question because right now I'm working on a, on a project. Even though I'm retired, I'm working on a project which we're, we're searching for universal principles of excellent teaching. And we're actually doing this on an international level. We're trying to look across cultures and see what kind of traits and characteristics identify teachers as, uh, as excellent. Now, what, what, you know, it, it may be that there are principles of teaching that span the world span the globe, um, that anybody who's an excellent teacher must possess these, these types of uh, traits. And there are a few. Um, the first and foremost, and we've already talked about this, is knowledge. You know, you cannot ever become a good teacher, let alone an excellent teacher, unless you are, you know, unless you have that body of knowledge to share. Beyond that, there are a couple of other things that I think are really important. And I think this is really important um, with, with teaching in the movement field, and that is you have to be able to connect with your student. You have to be at some level, some emotional level. You have to be able to establish rapport with those people you're teaching. If you don't have that, then you are unable to sort of instill in those students the desire to want to be in class or to keep coming back to class. We find that teachers who have established rapport with their students uh, encourage those students to develop a whole host of pro-academic behaviors, attending class, taking notes, studying the notes, seeing the teacher during office hours, emailing the teacher if there's a problem that this, the student needs to have solved, um, doing better on tests. So the combination of being knowledgeable and being able to have those social skills to set up, establish rapport with your students is paramount. The third thing that's really important and this, is, this goes a long, long ways um, in terms of being an excellent teacher, and that's being passionate about what you're doing. You have to somehow convey why you love what you're doing. In other words, if I am a teacher of psychology, I need to convey my enthusiasm for the field, for that discipline, for teaching, and for my students to the students. And in enthusiasm really really goes a long way in capturing and holding students' interest. After all, 
if you're not passionate about your field, how can you expect students to be? So if you're a, if you're a coach or if you're a, a, a teacher at a local gym, it's very, very important that you're, you show your excitement about what it is you're teaching, period. No if, ands, or buts. It's, it's, a, it's a must. So I think those three things, being knowledgeable, being able to establish rapport, and being enthusiastic are absolutely key. And what we find is that teachers across the board, okay, possess those characteristics. And that's what defines their excellence as a teacher. Let me add one other thing to this that I think is very important and that we're also finding to be very important. And that is excellent teachers are reflective teachers. That is, they just don't go through the motion. They take time to stop and think and evaluate what they're doing and assess what they're doing. And if something's not going right, if they're feeling that something's just not right, or if, if they feel that the students have a uh, particularly good criticism, and they do seek criticism from the students, and they do so with an open mind, then what those teachers do is figure out, okay, what do I need to do now? What do I need to do to put it right? And without being able to assess and reflect your teaching or whatever it is you, you happen to do, you're never going to get any better. You're simply going to be the same person you've always been. It's like my martial arts teacher used to always say, if you do what you've always done, you're going to get what you've always got. You're never going to move forward on that. I'm not necessarily talking about pushing yourself to achieve impossible scores or times in a race. I'm talking about taking in the overall uh, ambience of what you're doing as a, as, a, as a person who's moving or an athlete and saying, are there ways I can get more out of this? Are there ways that I can develop my skills, my talents, my times, my performance? Are there things I can do? What should be those things? And so you're constantly seeking new knowledge, like any good teacher does in academics. You're seeking ways to learn more about your field and ways to teach it better. I think those are four really good things. I want to address each of those in a little bit more detail. I think your final one, being motivated, or actually your penultimate one, was being passionate or motivated about what you do. And I think in the movement field, most people who do this, since it's generally not the best pay paying field, if you do it, you're doing it because you, you're excited about what you do and you like to move. So I think most exercise and movement professionals hit number three on your list of being passionate or excited about what they do. I wanted to talk a little bit well, that's, about... That's oops. a good place to start. Yeah, so that's that's the first right. thing. So to go back to the first point that you mentioned, a knowledge base. I know one of the things in various professional organizations and when you get people in the movement field of different careers, you know, everywhere from researchers to personal trainers to physical therapists... Some of them always say, well, I know enough. I don't need to know any more. I just, need, I just need to do it. And other people are always seeking knowledge. So no matter what the field is, do you think it's ever a time period when a professional has too much knowledge and there's like, okay, I just need to stop. I don't need to have more ideas? I think that's impossible. I think if you want to continue growing as a human being, keep developing as a professional, in any kind of uh, area of work or in sport, I think you need to constantly seek new knowledge. Uh, otherwise, you uh, you become passe and you become out of date. You become come out of touch. And as a teacher, 
if you become passe or out of touch with the current body of knowledge in your field, then you cannot keep your students abreast of those current developments and you can, and you hinder their development. Do you think it's possible? Are there people who are excited or passionate about what they do or, or about their teaching, but who don't recognize that they also need to keep up with the knowledge? Or do you think somebody who's passionate and excited about their teaching and what they do, generally the knowledge takes, pla- takes place or the acquisition of knowledge takes place because it's like they're curious because of their passionate? I certainly think that's part of it. I, I really do. Um, uh, you have to have both zeal and knowledge in order to be um, proficient or competent at anything that you do. Um, I think people who are passionate about it, um, and sincerely so, I mean, a genuine passion, um, are the kinds of people who will continue to explore and be curious about what's going on in their field or what they can do to improve themselves as, um, as, in, as individuals. I, I absolutely agree with you. I think the second point you mentioned was connect emotionally. And I've talked to a number of professionals in moving to live. And what I've found with each one of them, and maybe that's just because these are people that I've sought out for moving to live, is each one of them has created their niche in the field of movement, whether they're working with postpartum women, whether they're working with individuals who are first-time exercisers. So with the connecting emotionally, do you think for the teaching and for teachers in different fields, there's going to be always going to be a core group of individuals that they're teaching that they're always going to connect better with? So for example, if we're talking in an academic setting, are there going to be some teachers who exhibit these traits, but they're always going to be much better at teaching lower level students, maybe uh, first and second year undergraduate students versus graduate students simply because that's who they connect with, even though they have a very high level of knowledge. Um, that's a good, that's what will happen with a good teacher um, who's not interested in going any further. Uh, what we find in excellent teachers is that they find a way to get everybody's attention. So, they share that passion equally with the brightest students in class as well as the students who are struggling. In fact, many excellent teachers go far out of their way to make extra contact with struggling students to let them know that the teacher cares about them as learners and as human beings and is continually searching for ways to help those students um, overcome their struggles. Um, that's a, it's a hallmark of an excellent teacher that that we don't, well, we, we don't leave any students behind. We always try our best with each and every student. And, you know, it's tough if you have a class of 60 or 70 students or even, you know, larger than that. But what you'll find is that the best teachers have the greatest connections with the most students in their courses. To take this kind of a step farther with the exercise field where you're always going to have people – in the exercise and movement field who they just love to move. And I think you're a great example of that simply because you've demonstrated over the years that you just like to move, whether it's in a martial arts class or going out for a walk with your dogs, any ideas or tips, any ideas or tips for somebody who's in the movement field who works with people who are there either because they're getting a reduction on their healthcare costs by taking an exercise class or 
I know I need to exercise. I don't really like it, but I have to do it anyways. Tips to help possibly connect with those people. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I think it's a really important question because I think a good teacher, regardless of the arena, can make a difference in those people's lives. Uh, You may not be able to reach everyone, but if you don't try, you'll reach no one. So uh, I think that if... If, if uh, an exercise, a teacher of some sort of exercise at the gym, is, let's, say, let's say they have a, they're teaching a spin class and they've got 15 people who come with them in that class, and there's one or two or three or four of those people who are there only because they're compelled by their doctor to be there and they don't really want to be there. I think one of the things that a good teacher will do in that situation is to, first of all, make sure you know every student in your class, you know the situation that they're in, and where appropriate and as frequently as possible, you encourage those people to continue or to do something better, or you, you compliment them. Sometimes a compliment might be a little bit generous, but you know, when people get attention, positive attention from other people, they, they get excited and they feel like they're doing something. They feel like that, that they're bettering something about their lives and they're more likely to continue it. Um, I've seen this happen time and time again in the classroom where you have these struggling students who who, because they have a great teacher who pays attention to them, who rewards them, who pats them on the back, knows them by the uh, first name basis, that they become interested in, in academics for the first time. They become interested in their education the first time. And you find that they become motivated now, no longer to be that C student, but to at least strive to maybe a B or an A minus, or sometimes even an A. Um, great teachers can make incredible transformations in their students, uh, regardless of the discipline. And I, I think, you know, so many people who go to the gym or they go to the pool, they get discouraged after the first or second time because they don't feel like they're getting anything. You know, a lot of these people really want to, they think that, okay, I'm going to start an exercise program and at the end of a week, I'm going to be fit. Well, that you, you and I both know that that's just wrongheaded. What these people need more than anything is somebody who attends to them, who pays attention to them, who rewards them, who makes, who makes coming to the gym fun, who makes exercise fun and not just at a high level. Um, and I think the way to do that is to connect to them through encouragement and reinforcement. And I think what you've described there as far as is really what they talk about in exercise is creating a community. And there are some forms of exercise that do a really good job of creating community. And if you look at the literature and if you look at where fitness facilities have moved to over the past few years, they've become uh, more boutiques where they're specializing in one thing, whether it's a yoga studio or a Pilates studio or a spin studio or something that works just with kettlebells so they can possibly connect more with the individual students. Right. Or I guess I should say individual clients, not students, even though they actually are students of exercise. Right. I want to ask a question along those same lines uh, because this is something that's very common and really beneficial with exercise. And many of these fitness classes and movement classes create a sense of a community that you get to know the various class participants, you get to know the teacher, but inevitably there's always going to become an occasion when you, when you end up with students who maybe are in a class at a higher skill level than they're able to participate in how or what advice do you offer to a movement person? I think it's similar for a teacher where you can recognize that this is somebody who 
can benefit from exercise or from knowledge if it's in the teaching section, but they need to take a step back and do something before they come to this higher level thing. Tips that you can offer to professionals to kind of catch that because it's it's rather uh, coarse and jarring to say, yeah, you don't need to take this class because you're not good enough yet. Yeah. Yeah. That's a sure way to discourage anybody from exercise. That's for sure. Um, I, I think, you know, and it's a, it's a really difficult problem in academics because when you look out over that sea of faces, let's say you have 25 students in a class, you realize that those faces represent a variety of academic backgrounds, histories, talents, and skill levels. And so you have to ask yourself, to whom am I going to teach? Am I going to teach to the higher level kids? Am I going to teach to the lower level kids? I'm going to teach right in the middle. Uh, that's sort of a crazy way to look at it. You have to find some way to accommodate your teaching to provide challenges to those very, very bright students or talented students, and yet um, provide some encouragement and opportunities for the students who are who are not that bright, who are not that motivated. And it's the same thing in an exercise class. And, if, and I go back to what I've said before, is that if you know your students on an individual basis, if you've established that connection for them, with them, excuse me, then you know what they're capable of and you can modify your class so that you have parts of the class that are particularly challenging uh, to uh, the higher level kids and to the other kids who are struggling a little bit, you provide a different set of challenges. So I'm thinking to go back to a spin class again, you know, if you're, if you are, um, if let's say you're, you're um, 20 minutes into a spin class and people are pretty warmed up. And so you have people sort of stand and pedal and you've got people who have really good endurance, who have really strong legs that can stand up for a minute and a half, but you let them stand up for a minute and a half. But, but you let the class know that if you can't go that long, then, um, you know, let's try for 30 seconds, give them a goal, give them a goal to shoot for, and then gradually raise the bar so that those people are brought up to the level of some of the more, um, uh, physically fit individuals in the class. That way you don't discourage them. It's, there's no shame and make sure that the students know there's no shame. Back off a little bit in, uh, in the gearing or in how long you stand up or the pace that you're keeping is perfectly okay. Um, that's a very successful technique in the teaching of martial arts because you've got a great variety of people who are um, very, very skilled, very, very naturally gifted with the movements that's involved in the martial arts. And so you let those people, you give those people tasks to do that are different from the tasks that you're asking other people in the class to do, but all at the same time. And a good instructor is able to manage that kind of variety of uh, challenges in the course. So I think it comes back down to knowing your students' individual levels, realizing their struggles, and let them know that if they can't do it today, maybe they can do it tomorrow. Give them a goal. One more thing to touch on or one more aspect to touch on and connecting emotionally with your students, your clients, or your athletes is I'm sure you experienced this when you were at Auburn because I know you taught the uh, intro level to psychology class for many years. And this is very common in movement and it's very common in other areas where somebody shows up and says, okay, I'm here. I have to be here. I don't want to be here, um, but I'm accepting that I have to be here go ahead and do what you wish with me. So they're basically saying, I'm here, teach me, or I'm here, make me exercise. Any tips for instructors or movement professionals from your area of expertise in teaching? Um, you know, I had a lot of students like that in my, in my regular courses. 
And when I taught martial arts, I had I had students who's, who were there only because their parents, you know, in martial arts, you teach a variety of ages from uh, three and four-year-olds up to, you know, 80-year-olds. And so it's a really interesting process to go through all different classes. Of course. I, I'm struck with that when you say that. I'm struck with the Seinfeld episode where Kramer was exercising or doing a martial arts class with five and six-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, I remember. And they wind up chasing him in the alley and beating him up. Exactly. <laughs> we don't want that. <laughs> no, no. But, um, you know, a lot of times um, in the martial arts academy, parents will sign their children up, and children really don't want to be there. And so what you try to do as an instructor in that case is, first and foremost, is to have fun. And learning should be fun. I don't care what it is. Uh, it should be fun. And a good instructor will find ways to make that learning fun. And so we did a lot of uh, we did a lot of fun games for kids that taught them skills or helped them in their balance or movement in one way or another. And we sort of sort of snuck the learning in on them. And that's what you do in college too, is you know, sometimes students are having so much fun in your courses they don't realize just how much they're learning until the time time comes for a final grade. And you just love it when a student says, Oh wow. I didn't think I could do this. I did. I didn't think I could. I could get an A in this class. And what happens then? They want to take another class, and now they're motivated to learn in ways that they haven't. So, I think for those exercise instructors who are having people who are who don't want to be there, is first of all you sh- you show them how just how enjoyable this particular movement can be and why it's important. So you, you deal with them on an emotional level, and you deal with them on a, a visceral level, and you deal with them on an intellectual level. Um, and and I, I found that when I was instructing martial arts, that that was a very effective way to connect with folks. Um, most adults in martial arts are there because they've chosen to be there. But the kids, they're there because their parents want them there for one reason or another. And there's a variety of reasons. Um, so when we would have teenagers come in with a little bit of an attitude, you know, that this is, this is like kid stuff. I'm not going to be very good at this. You, you, you sense that right away as a teacher. And you give them a little bit of special attention and let them know that you're there and that this is going to be fun and um, get to know them on a first-name basis and show them that they are as capable as anybody else in this class of doing what you're going to ask them to do. Um, you know, you give them a little bit of extra attention. You know, kid with them a little bit. Uh, make, make learning fun. I, I don't know if that's a good answer to your question, but that's what I found has worked in my in my exercise instruction. And, uh, and martial arts is the only thing I've ever instructed in the exercise field. I, I think it's a good answer, and I think it shows that there's a variety of ways of doing it, which is kind of what I wanted to get across when I inter- when I have you for an interview because – too many people are saying this is the only way to do something and if you don't do it my way you're an idiot and i think you've exhibited in your talk over the last few minutes that that's not the case we're talking with dr bill buskis he is an expert in what makes uh, extraordinary teachers he's given us some valuable tips for if you desire to be a valuable or an excellent teacher or instructor you need to have a knowledge base you need to connect emotionally you need to be passionate or excited about what you do and the final thing that he mentioned is you need to be reflective of what you've done and i think in coaching or in exercise science or in training programs that's something that is very important and people need to kind of stop and think a little bit more about because 
There is the science of coaching where you look at this is what the science and this is the way the body should respond, but there's also the art. I know this came up a few episodes ago. We interviewed Sam Callen, who's the director of coaching education for USA Fencing, who also coaches some endurance athletes. And I'm not sure if this is in the podcast or if when we were talking about it prior to the podcast, but he mentioned he had an athlete where he prescribed two times 20 minutes at a fairly high intensity. And the athlete would do all of the training program except for these two by 20 minute sessions. And Sam finally asked her, he said, you know, why aren't you doing these sessions? You know, they're part of your program and you're doing such a great job of following the program. And the lady said, well, I just can't do it mentally. I get to 12 or 13 minutes and my mind just shuts off. And Sam was able to say, oh, well, how about if we do four by 10 minutes? And suddenly the woman was able to do all of the training program that Sam developed for her and apparently did quite well. So I know it's often very, very difficult for young professionals or maybe somebody who is in time constrained if they're in a job where they have more and more athletes or more and more participants piled on them to be reflective because it's a time commitment that maybe you don't see the gain for. Or as a young professional, you're kind of like, well, this is the way my teacher said it. My teacher was really, really smart. Or this is the way so-and-so is doing it in my gym. And they're really, really smart. Ideas or thoughts that you found with your years of experience on how to encourage other professionals to take that final step and be reflective in their teaching or their instruction? Well, you know, the, the advantage of working with motivated people is that it's an easy step to take. They see it. Uh, they, they understand that they cannot really improve what they're doing unless they take time out to think about what they're doing. I mean, this is, this is why I think it's important for all people in, who are active to keep a log of what they're doing. Um, so they know what kind of exercise they're getting. They know what their diet is, is like. They're, they're tracking what's going else in their lives that's affecting their ability to engage in movement activities. Because if you don't have those kind of raw data, uh, you have nothing to reflect over. You have nothing to uh, really base your decisions on what to do next or where to take your training to the next level. So it's easy to work with motivated people as long as they have the data in front of them. Um, Others, um, it's, a more, it's a more difficult challenge to get them to sit and think because they're busy people. They don't want to take even 15 or 20 minutes uh, once a week to sit down with their logs, to sit down with what they've done, to sit down to look at their goals um, and, and uh, diagram out a plan. So you have to find ways to convince them that that is a necessary thing. And what I found works really good is to simply ask them to describe to themselves or to me uh, what their training involves, what their movement involves, and why they do it. And then once they've described that, the next question is, is uh, where do you want to take that? Where do you want to go next? And that sort of gets them to think, perhaps for the first time in their lives, about what they're doing and and why it's important. And, what, and do they want to take this someplace? Do they want to develop their skills to a higher level? Um, you know, we just get so caught up in life. And the comings and goings of, of everyday work and, and things, that, things that stress us that we forget to breathe. We forget to come up for air. And I think once you can begin that conversation with a student, 
and ask them about what they're doing and why they're doing it and what they want to do next, then it's like, aha, the light bulb goes off and they suddenly realize, well, yeah, you know, maybe I should give a little bit more thought and planful consideration to these kinds of things. You know, I I know a lot of people, um, you know, out here where I live in, in Salida that they're very, very busy, but they find time to exercise. And sometimes they just want to have the time to exercise. They, they just want to get there 45 minutes in a day. They don't realize that um, they could be doing something better or more efficient or that would be uh, more effective in developing their skills or developing their level of fitness because they're simply concerned about getting in. So you got to get people to stop and think. And by asking those two or three simple questions, um, you can often be successful in getting to be more reflective. I've got one final question that I think uh, you could provide some insight on. I know that when you coach teachers or you give uh, workshops, you often encourage young teachers to have a statement of teaching style. And I think I'm using the correct terminology. Do you see that as a potentially with your experience, both as a martial arts instructor and as a longtime participant in various activities, do you think having a statement of coaching style or a statement of instructor style for a personal trainer would be beneficial both so that potential clients or athletes could see where they come from and also because it helps the individual solidify of why they think they're doing that and what their goals are behind being in this profession? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that having um, a statement of your teaching philosophy or your exercise philosophy, if you happen to not be a teacher but just want to be able to move, I think having those kind of statements is a really good step in terms of, of gauging where you are from time to time because as we go through life and we age and things happen to us, um, things, things change. And so sometimes we want to modify those goals. And it gives us a really good chance to track our thinking on things. So if I, if I take out my teaching philosophy that I wrote when I was an assistant professor, you know, 40 years ago, it's very much different than what my teaching philosophy statement looks like now. And so I'm able to take a look at the kind of growth I've sustained. And I can sort of see the changes in my intellectual and emotional approaches to my teaching. And I think it's the same thing for an athlete. I think if an athlete um, or somebody who just wants to be moving all the time takes time to record their thoughts and notes um, from time to time, that they're going to gain some really good insights into who they are as a human being, where they want to go as a human being, and where they've been as a human being. I think it's it's just a really nice roadmap all the way across. And I take great satisfaction pulling out my old teaching philosophies and Taking a look at like, oh wow, I was so naive back then. Look at look at the look how I've changed, you know. So it's a it's a really good thing to do. I think that it's a great suggestion, Ben. We've had the good fortune to talk with Bill Buskus. Bill is a longtime friend of mine, and I wanted to have him on the Moving to Live podcast because his area of expertise is what makes expert teachers. Even though he's been in the academic setting, I think this second. Uh, of two-part interview has really given some valuable information for anybody who works with individuals who move or if you're in the movement profession. I think to summarize it, he says, anybody who's going to be a good instructor or a good teacher or a good educator is going to have a high knowledge base. And 
I think I agree with Dr. Buskus when he says you can never have too much knowledge because things are constantly changing. He talks about connecting emotionally with your athlete, client, or patient. I think they have to know that you care about them and you have to make sure that you understand also why they're there because that may change how you address them. You have to be passionate about what you do and you have to be excited about what you do. And I think probably one of the more important steps that many professionals skip is you have to be reflective and look back at what you've done and think about, would I do that again? Was it successful? Why was it not successful? I always find uh, Dr. Buskus an interesting person to talk to, and I hope that you enjoyed this interview. Bill, thanks for taking time to talk to Moving to Live. Well, thank you so much, Ben. It's been a great uh, great opportunity for me to connect with you again, and um, I hope we get to talk uh, many more times in the future. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.